200 shows, 200 shows. It is the 200th show of sustainability. Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station, we are Forward Radio, WFMP, LP, Louisville. Been broadcasting out of this historic Habern building at 106.5 FM and live streaming to the world at forwardradio.org since April 9th, 2017. It was in April of 2017 that this show launched, and I have been doing it every week since then, and what a thrill it has been over these years. And I thought, uh, well, 200 shows is a, a little milestone worth celebrating, and so I have invited back onto the program my favorite guest of all time. You've heard her twice on the show, and she's back for more, this time in virtual form. My dear friend, Carolyn Waters. Welcome, Carolyn. Well, thank you, Justin. <laughs> but, I mean, you must say that to all of your guests. No, no, no. We'll, <laughs> we'll review the tape. Uh, no, actually, a lot of people I'm meeting for the first time when I have them on this show. So it's always a treat to have friends on the show. Uh, and for those who haven't heard her before, Carolyn is an environmental education researcher currently at Bellarmine University here in Louisville. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, a little bit about some of her research uh, in environmental ed. But first things first, Carolyn, you are a new homeowner, and we haven't talked since uh, huh. since that all came to pass. If you if you were astute listeners, will remember that Carolyn was building a tiny house, uh, and she was house sitting on the edge of the uh, Parklands at Floyd's Fork and seeing amazing things over there. But you you've now moved to Clifton, right? Yes, and we love it. We we moved right at the beginning of the pandemic last year, so that was extra exciting. And the tiny house is here with us, and we are still building the tiny house. Yeah. Uh, okay. I want an update on that. Is it first of all? So so you're you've got this new home uh, in Clifton. It's like a two bedroom or something like that. Uh, pretty. Pretty, you know, regular, normal sized for for the area, uh, but you also have this additional space out in the yard. What's what's the plan? What's going on? <laughs> well, let's just say it's a very long term project <laughs> that my partner Robert and I started. Oh my gosh, I've, it's embarrassing to say. I think it's been like seven years ago. Ah, yes, um, I remember when it was just a trailer. Yep. Yeah, we started with just the trailer, so it is on wheels, and we have moved it. I think four or five times. Yeah. And it is terrifying every time. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, you can move it, but it's not a mobile home. No, it's not the kind of tiny house that's meant to, like, travel around the country. Yeah, yeah. It's the kind of tiny house that can can move when we need it to. But... Yeah. So is it like beekeeping where you got to move it in the middle of the night and you do it really slowly when no one else is on the road? <laughs> I mean, that's ideal. Yeah. <laughs> that's how it happened the first time. <laughs> Unfortunately, probably the worst time was we were driving it out Bardstown Road in the middle of the day at like high traffic time. Wow. And the truck that we were driving to get out there broke down right in the middle of all this traffic. Broke down? Oh, no. Yep. Oh, no. That... So there, the tiny house was stuck in the middle of Bardstown Road. <laughs> Now, that sounds to me like tactical urbanism. Yeah, 
that's a good point. We should have taken it over. Did um did people gather around and it turned into a festival atmosphere and you started serving drinks out of the tiny home? Oh, that would have been a lot better than probably... the way that it actually felt. <laughs> it probably wasn't like that at all. Oh my gosh. Did, no. <laughs> did you have to get some industrial tow truck or what happened? Well, we have we have lots of great friends who know how to run uh-huh. big equipment uh-huh. and deal with engines and things. <laughs> so a couple of them were like at the ready to come help us. And we are very thankful for them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So give listeners a feel. How big is this tiny house? Oh, gosh. Off the top of my head, I used to have all of the specs memorized. Sorry, I didn't prep you for that. Than, it's less than 200 square feet. Okay. Less than 200 square feet. And it's 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 got a little loft in it, right? How tall is it? Yeah, it's thirteen feet six inches. Whatever. There's like a limit for the height of trucks, uh-huh. and it's just slightly shorter than that, so uh, yeah. it can go under bridges and stuff. Uh, yeah, I could think of some uh, roadways you wouldn't want to go on in Louisville with something that tall. Oh yeah, <laughs> it requires some planning. <laughs> But it is more than just a frame of a house now. It's got a roof and windows. Uh, what's left? Oh, yeah. What's, what's left on it? It's fully enclosed, and it has a functional tiny little wood stove. We have to cut the wood so small. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, so we have slept in it before, oh, and nice. even in the winter, and it's really cozy and warm. So I bet. It's that much is space. done. And it has a composting toilet that... I won't allow us to use until it has electricity. (laughs) (laughs) I see. uh, I want that to be fully functional, you know? (laughs) So, so what is the plan that is this uh, ultimately a retirement home or, or what? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Justin, it's a retirement home. Good. You're thinking early. uh, We started out, with the idea that we were going to live in this. We were going to buy some property, put this on the property, and this was going to be our primary residence. And I'm sure you can think through a whole bunch of reasons that that didn't end up happening (laughs) yet and may never happen. (laughs) So right now we're using it as essentially a wood shop. Right. So we, we do some woodworking. Robert does more woodworking than I do, but we both have some projects that it's nice to have this extra enclosed space that's not the house that we live in um, for storage and stuff. Well, are any of the reasons that you haven't moved into it related to city policy and ordinances about with respect to tiny homes? Well, uh, yes and no. There aren't a lot of really, there aren't any straightforward rules about tiny homes mm. in Louisville, or at least there weren't the last time that I was really digging into it. So we have it registered as an RV. It has its own license plate. Cool. And <laughs> um, since it's parked, there, there are rules about where you can park your RV and how it can be used. And we're following all of those rules. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But it turns out that it's easier to buy an existing house on a foundation and park your tiny house next to it than it is to just live in a tiny house. <laughs> Right, right, right. <laughs> there are cities in the country that have really progressed with this whole tiny house vision. Um, I'm especially familiar with what's going on in Madison, Wisconsin, where I lived for a decade. And um, they have a, a whole new uh, little neighborhood for housing houseless people. 
that's all tiny homes, and the houseless people are even involved in building them and maintaining them. So it's it can be a cool solution. Uh, but yeah, cities have to be amenable to these unusual ways of living. Uh, but of course, I mean, you're you're all about simplicity and sustainability. So the whole concept of what if we only needed a hundred square foot per person and could be off grid and have our composting toilet and all that must have appealed to you, right? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, we still live that way just in a regular house. (laughs) You close off all the other rooms and just live in one. That's an efficient way to heat, though. Yeah. 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 (laughs) My dad does that with an office space in the basement of of his house in in, uh, D.C. Uh, He he made himself a little igloo. (laughs) So it's like these foam insulated boards and he just has a little... Sometimes it uses a space heater, but sometimes all you need is the light. The lamps themselves generate enough heat or your body generates enough heat that as long as you're in a small space, uh, you actually yeah. don't, don't need to heat the whole house with fossil fuels, right? So that's cool. True. So you got this new house, not the tiny house, the regular one, and you're, you're filling it with animals. And so first, <laughs> first things first, you need to say for our listeners what the name of your cat is. <laughs> Oh, Justin, <laughs> this is like airing out my dirty laundry. This is okay. dirty. This is wonderful. This is delightful. <laughs> the cat, her name is Meowncy Crinkle McDaisy. <laughs> it was hard not to laugh while you were in the middle of that. Meowncy. I love it. I love it. Uh, any any explanation for these names? <laughs> yes. I only get credit for part of it. So... <laughs> My friend gave her the name Meowncy because she was a feral cat when we first met her. And so she was surviving off of mice and voles and whatever she could catch. So my friend said, oh, she slays. Her name is Meowncy. (laughs) There you go. And then my niece, who is six, wanted to name her Daisy. And I thought, yeah, but I really like Meowncy. And then Crinkle is... The sound that the food bag makes. Yes. And that's really what we call her. We call her Crinkle. Oh, that is a little easier, less of a mouthful than Meowncy. <laughs> but I like that the cat yeah. has a diva name. You know, cats are kind of diva-ish, so that's good. And then there's also a dog, which is like the counterpoint. It's just the dog's name is? Marshall. Yeah, so simple, right? <laughs> but you didn't name the dog. Right? <laughs> no, he, he came with that name. We adopted him. As an adult dog, <laughs> so he's he's helping keep the the house warm too. I'm sure you know it's the whole oh, idea yeah. of a three dog night was you know actually came from when you needed to cuddle up with three dogs because it was so cold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so tell us about uh, you know this whole thing of becoming a homeowner. Like, uh, wh- what were some of the opportunities you saw for sustainable living in your home? Oh gosh, I well let's just say this house needs a whole lot of work. And we because it's old, that. right? <laughs> yes, it was built in 1900. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so, which is part of what makes it possible to make some sustainable choices because there was no air conditioning when yeah. this house was built. There was no electricity or sewer lines or any of those things. So, one of the things I'm really excited about eventually getting to is restoring the transom windows above the doors. And it's a shotgun house, so it already has really great airflow. Is that right? In fact, last summer, we hardly used the air conditioning at all. 
So you just kind of put just a box because... fan at one door and it just draws through the house? Is that the idea? No, it does it by itself. I mean, we have ceiling fans that help, but the way that the shotgun house is designed, it's really easy for the air to just go huh. straight on through. Huh. And I then never if you add in shotguns. the transom windows, the transom windows are designed to work with the convection of, you know, the way that air moves based on its temperature. So if you learn how to use them correctly, then you can kind of manage the way that air travels through your house without wow. electricity at all. Wow. So is that helpful in both winter and summer? Help me understand. I've, ne I've never had a house with transom windows. Well, I've never actually used them. Okay, you're just trying <laughs> so to restore at this, this point. This is all theoretical, but I've talked to other people <laughs> who know about it. Um, <laughs> I mean, it makes sense in the summer, right? Heat rises, so you yes. want those high windows up at the top near the ceiling to let the heat out. Yes, and then if they're above every door all the way through to the back of the house, then that gives you, you good know, ventilation. And then in the winter, you they're they're operable, right? So you can close them in the winter and keep the heat yes, in the room yes. you're in. Yeah, cool. Wow. And we're really lucky in terms of wintertime when all the doors and windows are closed because all of our windows are south and east facing. Uh -huh. So we get some really great passive solar energy that yes. helps us heat our house. Helps you heat the house, makes you want to turn the lights on less. Great. Yes. And, and hey, good for growing plants. Starting also, seeds, right? Absolutely. Although we have... We do have a grow light for the for uh -huh. starting our seeds. Yeah, we do that we too. Because if you <laughs> don't, if I find if you don't, if you just let them get that daylight, then they get really leggy. Of course, there's other ways to uh -huh. try and keep them from doing that, getting too tall and flopping over. But anyway, this is not your seed starting workshop here on Forward Radio. We're talking on uh, today <laughs> on, on sustainability now with me, Justin Mogg, with my good friend Carolyn Waters, who's an environmental education researcher at Bellarmine, and we're going to talk about that piece of things uh, soon. But we're talking right now about her becoming a new homeowner in the Clifton neighborhood. Uh, is there anything else about your home that you, you dream of doing for sustainability? Are you looking into like renewable energy? We've talked about that. I know there's been some controversy in the Clifton neighborhood around solar panels. Really? And we're not quite ready to go there yet. But when the time comes, you know, maybe we will push the bar a little bit further there. Is the controversy have to do with um, like historic preservation? Yes. So the Clifton neighborhood is is a historic preservation district, like, like some other neighborhoods yeah. in Louisville. Mm -hmm. And that means there's pretty strict rules about what the outside of your house can look like. Mm. Um, and so there, I have heard of one case where a person installed solar panels and then was made to remove them. Oh because of, man. Yeah. Yeah. There's new technologies. Though. I like to hope that regulations can change as we learn more and like the, yeah, the technology changes too. So they don't look the same. Solar panels don't look the same as they used to. Yeah, they're making ones that are basically integrated into your roof shingles and things like that. I mean, that's probably really expensive at this point. But, um, yeah, maybe technology will evolve so that becomes less of an issue. Uh, what else? Uh, anything else in terms of efficiency or growing your own food that you're doing there? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, we could talk about this all day. There's so many things. Um, but my most recent project has been tapping a couple of maple trees Ooh, that yeah. are on the property. Yeah, so this I, was the first year you've tried it, right? Yeah, I've never done it before, but 
Yeah, we do you know, it. it was... We do it at U of L, uh, and we've been doing it with students and a community partner who lives out in Linden and has a sugar shack. I got to go visit it. We did our first boil a few weeks ago. Uh, and oh man, walking into his sugar shack, I tell you what, Carolyn, it smelled like golden grams. Ooh. I wasn't expecting this at all, <laughs> right? They're all, it's filled with steam. It's just filling to the rafters with this maple-scented steam. It's so delightful. And I never even made the connection in my head before between maple syrup and golden grams. But for some reason, that's exactly what it smelled like. And I haven't eaten golden grams since I was a kid. <laughs> but then what we did, we, uh, we're not just making syrup, but um, you can take some of the partially evaporated sap uh, so it's going through stages of evaporation, uh, and you could take some of the partially evaporated sap and make a tea out of it that just knocks your socks off. <laughs> oh, yum. It's so sweet and delicious. <laughs> but, I've been drinking it just, you know, because I'm not producing that much sap. Right. I only tapped two small trees. Right. So I didn't expect to get a whole bunch of syrup, and that meant like, well, it's okay if I don't use all of the sap to make syrup. So yeah. I've been drinking it just straight out of the tree. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's incredible. It's kind of like coconut water. Like, oh, it's better than coconut water. <laughs> <laughs> well, cause it's fresh, you know, anything that's absolutely fresh. And I don't know about you, but I haven't found any coconut trees around here. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> this is a sustainable local resource that, you could tap in your neighborhood too, and it's it's actually not just maple trees. Well, first of all, you don't need a sugar maple. That's a common misconception. Sugar maples are awesome for maple tapping. They they produce the most and they have the highest sugar content, which means it's just sweeter. So you got to do less boiling or evaporating, uh, or you you could have a better experience drinking it straight. But you could take a red maple, a silver maple. You could stick a tap in them, and not all of them perform super well. Like I find it's it's pretty highly variable. Uh, but you gotta just experiment, and and it's so it's as simple as like drilling a little two inch hole in and tap 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 this little tap in and hanging a bucket on it, and suddenly you're tapping into a magical resource that most people don't even think about, right? Yeah. It's so e I couldn't believe how easy it was. Yeah. Like, it's stupid easy. <laughs> <laughs> and a great excuse to get out in the winter, which we all need. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I have found myself a few times recently waking up in the morning and being like, oh, I need to go check my buckets and see if there's any sap in them. Yeah. And it's just so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, that's awesome. Well, I'm glad you started experimenting with that. And there's lots of other possibilities. I know you got a little garden going. Yeah, the, the most exciting thing about this house for us was that it came with an extra lot. Oh, yeah. And that was really only possible for us because it's right next to the railroad tracks. So it's a really quirky property, <laughs> but it was perfect for us. <laughs> so we started out with almost a blank slate. The only things in the yard besides turf grass were a handful of trees. Yeah. And so we've just been going wild with like planting fruiting trees and we have a small vegetable garden in a like very small amount of sunny space yeah. that we have. But yeah, we're just going wild out in the yard. And you have a fire pit and you're using, you know, down limbs and stuff for bonfires, which, of course, is a reasonably safe way to hang out with family and friends in a pandemic, right? Yes. 
I mean, I don't think I'm the only one who could say that they've had a lot more fire pit experiences this, <laughs> in the past year than normal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, we've been spending a lot of time feeling like that's the safest thing we can do and still get to see some family and friends. Yeah, it's to so important and we so need it right now. And speaking of that, one of the coolest things and maybe the most important sustainability wise too about your neighborhood is this incredible community, a place where you actually know your neighbors, right? Oh my gosh. We had no idea. You know, when you buy a house, it's sort of a crap crap You don't right? get to you, you, know the neighbors. You don't before get to you tour the other homes. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> so it turns out and I, I think they've said that this happened because of COVID. Like they didn't, we moved in after the first couple months of shutdown. So apparently during that time, the neighbors in our block just started getting to know each other really well. And when we moved in, they had already established some rituals and we just got to become part of this unintentional community. <laughs> <laughs> Unintentional, um, intentional community. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is so awesome because I've lived in several different intentional communities in the past and I love that and I miss it. And I kind of thought, you know, maybe I'm not going to get to do that again for a long time. But here we moved in and it's just was built into the house. Well, tell us for, for listeners who don't have this experience, maybe they, maybe they live in a place where they don't really know their neighbors or only know one or two, but certainly don't have these rituals. What are you talking about? Are you all uh, dancing around <laughs> naked around that bonfire? What's going on with these rituals? <laughs> hmm. <laughs> I mean, I can't share too much information, but um, <laughs> no, no, there's been no nudity so far. Uh, it's cold. Um, yeah. Wait, wait for summer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, but one of the first things that really started solidifying the community here, I think, was at the very beginning of COVID, people all over the world were doing things like banging pots and pans at 10 o'clock in the morning yeah. or turning on a green light, like the governor suggested that we do that. And I guess, I don't remember what part of Europe this was happening in, but at 7 p.m., everybody would ring bells and make noise for the frontline workers. Yeah. And so we have some healthcare workers that live on our block and they started doing that, the seven o'clock thing, which is different than what a lot of other people were doing in Louisville, Yeah. but it's stuck. And every single night at 7 p.m., there's a noise party. Wow. <laughs> so uh, do you ring a different thing every night? Do you find a different pot or pan or <laughs> creative device to make noise? <laughs> I think I think everyone has settled on something their that's favorite, like right? their signature piece. <laughs> and do I have this bell that I got from my grandmother that used to be like a it's not a wind chime, but it would hang outside at her house. So that's what I ring. Perfect. And do the, do the dogs join in? Does Marshall sing? Oh yeah, yeah. There's some barking. <laughs> I, you know, there are a few neighbors who don't participate in this. Sure. They're they're very gracious. They don't complain. <laughs> and this group of neighbors even knew it was your birthday before you invited them to your birthday bonfire, right? Yes. Aww. This is another ritual that has come about in the last... This is more recent. Um, so we've started to figure out when everyone's birthdays are. And when it is your birthday at 7 o'clock, as part of the noise party, there is a foot parade that involves... 
<laughs> costumes of some sort. There's usually a prescribed dance. What? And some other sort of surprises, like maybe sparklers or confetti. You never really know what it's going to be. That's so wonderful. Oh, my God. It's really fun. <laughs> so it's like it's like caroling, but you could do it any time of year because everybody's having birthdays throughout the year. That's a great idea. Exactly. Oh, man. <laughs> So this is this is really fun because most times when people are thinking about this kind of living, they think about like, okay, I got to wait until there's a co-housing development in Louisville or I've got to find some intentional community that's out in the sticks somewhere or something like this. But you can actually do this kind of stuff in any old, any old neighborhood in Louisville, right? Yeah. I mean, of course. But it did take the pandemic for this to happen in the neighborhood where I live, yeah, yep. you know, people were suddenly were not going out to jobs and had time to do this. Yeah. And really wanted to see other people. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I think it sounds like yeah. you all are thriving and figuring this pandemic out. Of course, a lot of people are. It's been, you know, a year now almost. So people are really getting uh, creative with the ways of engaging with others. Um, but yeah, it's important to maintain those connections and not just virtually, I think. So having these kinds mm -hmm. of in-person <laughs> rituals that are still safe is really key. Um, and I'm glad you all are doing it there in Clifton. Uh, you know, another thing that a lot of people have gotten into in the pandemic is cooking. And I know you, oh, yeah. you have discovered a new cookbook you want to talk about, right? Yes. I am obsessed with the six seasons six by joshua seasons. mcfadden wow yeah, i thought there six. were i thought there were only four carolyn <laughs> no 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 justin there are six <laughs> summer and a yeah, half <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah pretty much there this cookbook is arranged around uh there are six chapters and okay. each of them is titled with a season so yes there is spring summer fall and winter but there's also like early summer late summer early fall late fall so i forget exactly which ones get divided into two ah. but there end up being six seasons oh wow so six different chapters for six different sub seasons of the year what has been your favorite recipe so far oh my gosh <laughs> that's a really hard question to all right answer. pick a few um well i'll tell you the the most recent recipe that I made, okay, which was mashed celery root. Ooh, celery root! There's an unappreciated, yeah. underutilized vegetable in our community. <laughs> yeah. Is it actually pretty? Is it actually the root of regular old celery, or is it a totally different kind of crop? I think it is the root of regular old celery. Can I quickly yeah. say what I learned about celery recently? And Amanda and I are doing this all the time now. So if you if you um, just cut off, you know, like you would normally cut a celery head. If you just cut off the very bottom and stick it in water, that thing will re-sprout and re-root. And sometimes you can have total success planting it out. Or you can just have it as a cute little friend in your kitchen right now, which is what it is. Maybe when it gets warmer, <laughs> we'll plant it out in the soil. You can do it with carrots, too. Oh, I didn't know you could do it with carrots. Yeah, you cut the top it off a carrot, sense. and it'll make a little new sprout and send roots out, and you got infinite sustainable carrots. So <laughs> it's amazing. All right, so celery root, what does it taste like? I mean, it does taste like celery, but oh, wow. it's not as potent, and it's a little bit starchy. So it's almost like if celery and potatoes 
had a baby. Oh, they should have a baby. That's a good idea. So you just <laughs> you just mash it up and, and eat it like mashed potatoes, huh? That's what this recipe was. Um, and there was some milk and butter and you know well, things that made it taste really good. Well, yeah, garlic. <laughs> <laughs> So that's in like yeah. the, the deep winter section of the cookbook. Yes. <laughs> Which is so interesting because it's just full. The uh, the premise of the cookbook is that it's based around vegetables. And it's not an entirely vegetarian cookbook. There are some meat recipes. Mm -hmm. But the feature is vegetables. So he teaches you how to cook with not only seasonal vegetables, but Things like carrots, when you can get in lots of different seasons, he teaches you how to use them to their best at that time of year, which is just really great. Wow. So why do you say the future is vegetables? The feature, the feature of the cookbook. Oh, but also, well, the, the future is vegetables. Also, the future is vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I've 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 listened to some interesting podcasts recently about um, the future of meat. Actually, uh, sort of mm. so the flip side of this uh, invented thing that just came into my mind when you said "feature is vegetables." Um, that uh, you know, the way we produce meat now is so unsustainable; requires so much resources. There's no way we're going to be able to continue down this path. But people are always going to want to eat meat. So are there ways we could actually grow meat more sustainably? And there, so there's this whole uh, or, or offer meat or meat-like substances more sustainably. So there's this whole world of cell-grown meat uh, where you just take like stem cells and you make meat in a lab. And that technology is really moving along. But then there's also this whole explosion of uh, plant-based meat substitutes that are really, really, really meat-like. And some of them, for me, I tried them and I'm almost like, wow, that's, that's more meaty than I really wanted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've had the same experience. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sometimes I'm just like, well, give me a vegetable for crying out loud. That's a little much. <laughs> But I haven't eaten meat since uh, 1995, so I've gotten my senses are not used to it. But I can totally see how, like, someone who's really used to having that all the time, every day, would need like a transition step <laughs> to to get to a place where they're eating more plant based. So, you know, I'm they're pretty. There are some folks who are pretty bullish about this future of of meat. Uh, so maybe that is a part of sustainability. I should think about more. Um, and would I even want to eat it? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, probably not. I mean, I don't really crave. Well, now, if there was lab-grown shellfish, I really like shellfish. I haven't had it in years and years and years, right? But, huh, I wonder if they could make a good lab-grown shellfish. <laughs> that is really hard to imagine. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> the future is vegetables i like that well we're talking today with <laughs> with carolyn waters here on sustainability now she is an environmental education researcher at bellarmine and she's definitely one of my favorite guests i've had her on the show twice already and we're celebrating the 200th sustainability now program 200 shows uh starting today so that's really exciting and i wanted to have carolyn on to celebrate with me uh and let's talk about that research that you've been working on um so you're in a PhD program at Bellarmine, right? Uh, talk about what you're doing. Yes, I'm in a program that is titled Education and Social Change, and I'm bringing to that an environmental education bent. So 
that means that I've been studying inequities in education and vulnerable populations in general for the last three and a half years. And now I'm finally at the point where I'm writing my dissertation. Uh, I'm going to graduate this year. If everything goes well. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so many people get stuck at this point, but you, I, I trust you're going to plow through. Oh, yes. <laughs> and the COVID. And I will not allow anything else to happen. <laughs> yes. Even with COVID, which, of course, has hampered your efforts to be a participant observer of in-person environmental education, right? <laughs> yes, yes, which I have been doing for many, many years. And even before I enrolled in this program, I knew that that was the kind of research I wanted to do. And here, here I am not being able to do that and having to switch tracks, not completely, but doing something that's very different from what I expected to at the beginning. Yeah. So how are you doing this research? Oh my goodness. I am going to do this research using either Zoom or Microsoft Teams. Okay. Yeah. So it's a little complex. So I'm going to try to explain this in as simple terms as possible. Walk us through it. Yes. um, Yes. So environmental education at the national and international level, like lots of social movements right now, is reckoning with the fact that we've got major racial and economic disparities. Mm -hmm. So the people who are able to participate in environmental education aren't necessarily representative of the general population. The people who are teaching are largely white and descendants of Europeans, Mm. which doesn't necessarily reflect who the students are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so this is similar to education in general. So we know that this is a problem And there are lots of solutions, lots of pieces to the solution here. The one piece that I'm looking at is professional development for environmental educators. Okay. That is related to Jedi, justice, (gasps) equity, diversity, and inclusion. (laughs) Jedi method. (laughs) Aha. Yes. (laughs) So are you using the force for good here, (laughs) Carolyn? Well, of course. <laughs> and actually, I am not. Uh, I am not driving the force here. I am really observing and documenting what happens. Yeah. So th- there are some really high-level, nationally known consultants who designed this course, who are experts in diversity training. So I'm. I am not an expert in diversity training, um, but I can document what's going on and provide some feedback. Well, is this is this new or what? Because, I mean, equity, diversion, and inclusion, uh, diversity and inclusion, diversion, I'm thinking about landfills all of a sudden. Equity, diversity, and inclusion has been around in, in terms of, you know, professional development for educators for quite a while. But it's interesting that, that this justice piece has been added. Is that what's new? No. I would say that in my research, the new part is combining this with the environmental movement, Mm -hmm. which there's sort of a, there's been a rough history there between the social justice movement and the environmental movement in some ways. There's certainly a lot of overlap, but there are also people who butt heads about this. So environmentalism in the United States has not a great history of dealing with racial and ethnic issues. 
or, yeah. and diversity in those respects. So we're finally coming around, I think, and starting to repair some of the damage that's happened. Well, I mean, let's be explicit about that, right? Like, um, I know Sierra Club has been wrestling with their mm-hmm. history because it was John Muir who founded the Sierra Club. And apparently, I mean, this had been kind of in the closet for a long time, but it's coming out now that John Muir was quite a racist and was really looking to preserve wilderness spaces for white people, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's like, how do we move forward? Yeah. And that's just one example. Right. That's just one example. (laughs) Right. And in environmental education, the way that I see this playing out, and not just me, other people have written about this and shared this idea with me that, you know, we're using the outdoors as our classroom and we use place and land as the content of what we're teaching. So there are implications there because who owns this land? Mm. You know, who does this really belong to? And I would say indigenous people, you know, we have to, we have to recognize the fact that the land that we are using for teaching has a really long history and we need to tell the whole story, not just the settler colonial version of that story. Yep. Mm -hmm. And that's where we start seeing more and more of these land acknowledgements um, at events or Mm -hmm. institutions making land acknowledgements. It's becoming pretty common in higher education, I know. Um, I I wonder Mm -hmm. if you know if that's happening at the level of secondary education. Oh, in public education, I would bet that it's pretty rare, mm-hmm. uh, or, or even in, in private formal schools. But I think that informal environmental educators are starting to become more aware of this and develop practices. So that's kind of what I'm hoping to do with my research is to see if this training program that educators go through, is it actually helping them think about the way that they teach and change the way that they teach to recognize the the issues that we have and and try to right some of those wrongs. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's a very thorny issue because for several reasons, I mean, one big one I've personally encountered is because the indigenous histories are, are mostly oral and not written down. It's not really well recorded. Um, so it's hard to find information, basic information about who who were these people? Where did they live? What was their culture like? Because there's so few mm-hmm. records remaining. That's one thing to begin with. The second other thorny thing I wrestle with and start feeling uncomfortable with is, you know, what role of it, of ours as white people, is it to represent these, to try and represent these cultures? In some cases, you could be really, you know, half-assed way or even in a very serious way. Like if we're white people trying to do environmental education, uh, are we sort of co-opting? I'm worried about this, you know, issue of co-opting these cultures. So how do you, man, how do you navigate all that? Well, we are co-opting in our environmental education, especially if we're not explicitly thinking about that and working to do it in a more respectful way. So like an example I can think of is teaching about edible or medicinal plants. And I see people do this all the time where they'll say, oh, here's this plant and Native Americans used to use this for Mm -hmm. medicine. And then it's like, no, Native Americans, indigenous people (laughs) to this continent still use this and even people who are of European descent also use this. So it's, 
not as simple as we like to make it out to be sometimes. So we really need to dig into that. We really need to think hard about the, the things that we say and how true they are and change some of the assumptions that we have about plants and people, relationship to nature, relationship to land in general. Yeah, and then there's the issue with names of things, common names, uh can often involve derogatory terms or racist terms or just ignorant terms uh, mm -hmm. or misleading terms uh, with respect to indigenous people. So, yeah, it's it's a thorny mess. But we got, you're you're absolutely right that we have to, uh, if we want to do right and incorporate justice and and diversity and inclusion properly in in our environmental education, we got to sit with that discomfort, right? Yeah, and it is uncomfortable, and that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> if we're not uncomfortable, then we're not doing it right. You know, my yoga, <laughs> my yoga teacher says that a lot. <laughs> Pain is bad. Pain is bad, but discomfort is good. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, we're terrible the at that as Americans. Yeah, exactly. It's the only way to grow. But we're just so bad at it because we've built up this culture where comfort is king. And we, we kind of mm -hmm. spend our whole lives trying to be more and more comfortable when that, I think, is what ultimately gets us to unsustainable places, uh, whether it's wrestling with, you know, our relationship with the indigenous peoples or whether it's getting off your butt and getting some exercise, getting where you need to go instead of sitting around all the time, right, and feeling comfortable in my climate-controlled environment. <laughs> all of that is unsustainable. So uh, it, it can be a hard sell sometimes. <laughs> But I'm glad you're oh, yeah. wrestling with it, and I'm excited to see what your research reveals about this Jedi training model. Um, any any last things as we wrap up that you want to share or you want to recommend to our listeners in terms of resources, maybe place to learn more about the Jedi training model, or anything? Anything you want to share to wrap up? Uh, well, this model is not available to the public yet. It will be eventually, so I can't share that yet. Stay tuned. Um, but Stay I will tuned. say that the North American Association for Environmental Education has a whole lot of resources about justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion specific to environmental education on their website. And the Kentucky Association for Environmental Education also has a pretty nice list of resources as well. Well, great. Um, not to mention the Kentucky Native American Heritage Council has so much information <laughs> That it's almost like, where do I begin? Yeah. Uh, but those are a few, a few places to start. Well, great. I'll, I'll include links to those resources in the program notes for this, uh, the podcast version available on SoundCloud, and you can find it forwardradio.org. Wow, we're all out of time already. How did this happen? 200th show in the bag, Carolyn Waters. Thank you so much for joining me. It was such a special treat to have you on again and get an update on where things stand with you. And uh, good luck finishing the tiny house and uh, getting a good maple syrup harvest this year and continuing to build that community in your new home. I'm really excited. And finish my dissertation. Oh, that too. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Justin. <laughs> All right. We'll have to have you back sometime to hear about that finished dissertation. Stay tuned, everybody. Coming up in just a minute, it's your community action calendar with all kinds of ideas for how to be more sustainable this week right here in Louisville. So stay tuned, my friends. Flow like a river to the sea.
we're back here on the 200th show of sustainability now with me justin mogg here on forward radio your community radio station broadcasting from the top of the historic Hayburn building at 106.5 fm and maybe you're listening online at forwardradio.org of course we want you to go to forwardradio.org to help sustain us for another 200 shows i do this with volunteer power and we rely entirely on volunteer power to keep this station on the air but it also takes a little bit of your listener dollars to help sustain us pay the utility bills, uh, pay the rent, keep the equipment upgraded and the licenses current. And so if you could chip in maybe $20, you could support the entire day's broadcast, not just my show, but everything else that's great about Forward Radio. And you can do that at forwardradio.org. You can donate your time there, or you can click on participate and donate your uh, time as well as your treasure to this station. And also we're recruiting right now for people who want to participate in our fourth uh, anniversary first time ever virtual talent show that we're going to do on April 10th. So if you've got a talent you want to share with our community, go to forwardradio.org and uh, tell us what you want to do. And maybe you'll be part of the show on April 10th. And it's a it's a little fundraiser. We'll be selling tickets for the show soon. And our pledge drive will be coming up soon, right leading up to that, leading up to our very birthday there on April 9th, when we will celebrate four years of broadcasting to the community. Well, I'm Justin Mogg, and this is time now for our 200th Community Action Calendar. So many ways for you to get involved in sustainability this week, so get your pencils out, sharpened, and your calendars ready. It's coming up this Tuesday, February 23rd, Beyond Buzzwords, White Fragility with Robin D'Angelo from noon to 1.15 online. Beyond Buzzwords is a Metro United Way speaker series on diversity, equity, and and inclusion. Speaking of which, (laughs) uh, that is designed to provide thoughtful and meaningful discussions about important topics that promote thinking and action. The next installment of the series will feature Robin D'Angelo, New York Times bestselling author of the book White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Race came out in June of 2018 and has made quite a splash. In 2011, she coined the term white fragility in an academic article which has influenced the international dialogue on race as it is being translated into 10 languages now. Dr. D'Angelo has numerous publications and books, including award-winning book Is Everybody Really Equal? An Introduction to Key Concepts in Critical Social Justice Education. Two-time winner of the Student's Choice Award for Educator of the Year at University of Washington School of Social Work, D'Angelo is an affiliate associate professor of education. She earned a PhD in multicultural education at University of Washington and holds two honorary doctorates. In addition to her academic work, Dr. D'Angelo has been a consultant and trainer for over 20 years on issues of racial and social justice. I'm sure Carol and Waters will be checking out this free program coming up Tuesday, February 23rd at noon. You can find the link to register under events at facebook.com slash Metro United Way. Also on Tuesday, virtually in the evening on February 23rd at 6 to 8 p.m., it's the 11th Annual Human Trafficking Awareness Conference held at the University of Louisville. The Women's Center and Women for Women Student Board are again raising awareness of human trafficking in Kentucky to educate students and the community and to take action to prevent it. The 11th Annual Human Trafficking Awareness Conference is going to be held on Tuesday the 23rd, 6 to 8 p.m., virtually. The program will be recorded and posted 
posted afterwards if you can't make it. The focus of this year's conference will feature local anti-human trafficking efforts, what we can do as a community, and the impact of the pandemic on all of these efforts. The conference agenda includes a survivor speakout and an update on human trafficking policy and legislation from Tina Halbig, president of Forward Radio Community Partner, the Kentucky Division of the United Nations Association. The conference is also going to conclude with presentations from local anti-human trafficking organizations. We'll hear from Amy Nace DeGonda of Catholic Charities of Louisville, uh, Dr. Teresa Hayden of People Against the Trafficking of Human, uh, PATH Coalition of Kentucky, and Jennifer Beagle from Safe Passage. You can find the link to register at louisville.edu slash sustainability for the 11th Annual Human Trafficking Awareness Conference coming up Tuesday the 23rd, 6 to 8 p.m. online. Wednesday, the 24th at 10.30 a.m. is the next program in the Muhammad Ali Center's I Am America Racial Justice Series. The title of the uh, presentation that's going to take place on Wednesday is This Is America. Again, this is taking place virtually on the day of the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. President Joe Biden stated in his address to the nation that this was not America. Well, join the Muhammad Ali Center and our esteemed panel on February 24th as we challenge this declaration. Our panel will examine the deep historical role that race and racism have played and continue to play in our political landscape and our country as a whole. Our panelists will discuss the importance of owning up to our history and the dangers that occur when we fail to hold ourselves accountable. Panelists will include Dr. Ricky L. Jones, chair of the Pan-African Studies Department at the University of Louisville, Dr. Tori weeston Surden, a CEO of Youth Mentor Action Network, and Sean Dove, founder of the Corporation for Black Male Achievement. It'll be moderated by Donald Lazare, president and CEO of the Muhammad Ali Center. You can find more information in the link to register for this Wednesday, 10.30 to 11.30 a.m virtual event at aliecenter.org. Also on Wednesday in the evening at 5 p.m., Kentuckians for the Commonwealth has issued a call to get involved in their work in the 2021 Kentucky General Assembly. Now you can find full details at facebook.com slash Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. But it continues this Wednesday, the 24th at 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. with a phone bank on voting rights. You can join virtually via Zoom. They'll be calling on supporters across the state to ask them to call into the legislative message line in support of restoring voting rights to people with felonies in their past. We'll come together on the call, meet each other, have a training, and then go make some calls through our phones and computers. You can register for this great event at cutt.ly slash phone bank underscore voting rights. Or you can just find the link and more details at facebook.com slash Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. Also on Wednesday at 6 p.m., uh, uh, it's a virtual town hall on the Metro budget. Louisville Metro operates on an annual budget uh, for the period from July 1st to June 30th, and discussions about the fiscal year 22 budget, which begins on July 1st, are well underway. Mayor Fisher will present his proposed budget on Earth Day, April 22nd, and Metro Council's Budget Committee will hold dozens of hearings before modifying and passing a budget in late June. Well, Council members Bill Hollander and Cassie Chambers-Armstrong will be hosting this virtual town hall discussion on the Metro budget process and priorities for the coming fiscal year on Wednesday the 24th at 6 p.m. Now, you can join this meeting via Zoom at bit.ly bit.ly slash L-O-U budget bit 
dot ly slash new budget or you can watch it on facebook live at either of those council members facebook pages that's uh councilman bill hollander or facebook.com slash council member cassie chambers armstrong and that's wednesday the 24th at 6 p.m coming up on thursday uh it's the last february no waste louisville webinar series at 3 p.m the waste management district is offering this great informational series on every thursday in february at 3 p.m and on february 25th the topic will be a very important one backyard composting you can learn about backyard composting and how to just get started if you've never composted before don't be intimidated it's not that difficult and it provides a great resource for you and a wonderful soil amendment that you could even use in house plants if you don't have a garden uh, but it's one of the most important things you can do when thinking about solid waste we always think about recycling well in terms of global impact keeping your organics out of the landfill so they don't turn into methane a super powerful greenhouse gas is really really important and the way to do that in louisville is with backyard composting so come on out this thursday at 3 p.m on february 25th and the place to go to register and learn more is nowastelouisville.org that's k-n-o-w wastelouisville.org also on Thursday the 25th from 5.15 to 7.15 p.m. It's the Salt River Watershed Watch Annual Conference. It's a virtual event this year. Salt River Watershed Watch is a nonprofit group of almost 100 volunteers who give their time to improve our streams through a coordinated campaign of water quality monitoring, skills development, water improvement projects, and environmental education. Salt River Watershed Watch volunteers monitor streams, rivers, and springs in all or parts of Jefferson and 18 surrounding Kentucky counties. They monitor the river streams and springs that flow to these counties, including the Ohio River tributaries from Little Kentucky River to Salt River, the Salt River itself from Hardensburg Fork uh, to Ohio River, the Rolling Fork watershed, including the Chaplin River, Beach Fork and Rolling Fork, and the Sinking Fork and other Ohio River tributaries from Salt River to Sinking Creek. This free conference will kick off the 2021 monitoring season by presenting and discussing the most recent monitoring results and projects. The program will feature presentations, including the state of the Salt River watershed. More details and a link to register are at kwalliance.org. That's the Kentucky Waterways Alliance, kwalliance.org. Coming up on Friday the 26th at noon, the University of Louisville invites you to our monthly EcoReps workshop on the theme of urban orchards and foraging. It's online. You can join us for these monthly EcoReps workshops featuring locals making a difference in sustainability. And our featured speaker on the 26th will be my own wife, my amazing wife, Amanda Fuller from Lots of Food, an urban orchard and market garden in the Portland neighborhood. She'll provide a virtual fruits and nuts tour and information about late winter foraging. Amanda established Lots of Food on five contiguous vacant lots in the Portland neighborhood back in 2014 to demonstrate conservation practices, produce food for food insecure neighborhoods, and plant Louisville's first and only almond and hazelnut orchard. It's nuts! Amanda sells nuts, honey, and other products and teaches foraging workshops. This presentation is a collaboration with the Urban Agriculture Coalition's Friday Virtual Chat Series. You can find out more and check out the Urban Ag Calendar at the Urban Agriculture Coalition's website. That's foodinneighborhoods.org slash grow. 
You must register in advance for this meeting at that site. After registering, you'll receive a confirmation email containing information about joining the meeting. So you can find the link to register at louisville.edu slash sustainability or foodinneighborhoods.org slash grow. Again, it's this Friday the 26th from noon to 1 p.m. online, UofL's Eco Reps Workshop on Urban Orchards and Foraging. You don't want to miss it. I also want to let you know that speaking of the Urban Agriculture Coalition, a proud Ford Radio community partner, they're pruning parties continue uh get your cold weather gear out and let's prune fruit trees together they are uh helping neighbors to prune the community orchards around the city again this year you can come out and learn how to plant how to prune fruit trees and help maintain the trees in our community orchards they'll be providing the pruning tools and you can learn more and sign up to help at tinyurl.com orchards 2020 and this Saturday, the 27th, from 2 to 5 p.m., they'll be out at the People's Garden once more. They're at 44th and Bank. We made great progress about a month ago, pruning about half of those trees, and we've still got a little bit more work to do out there. It's a great orchard. If you've never been out to the People's Garden at 44th and Bank, you'll want to come check it out this Saturday, 2 to 5 p.m. Again, you can register and learn more at tinyurl.com orchards2020. And finally, on Sunday at 6 p.m., I'll remind you about the Facing Winter film series that Kentucky Interfaith Power and the Light is excited to bring you for free, an online film series uh, designed to introduce participants to issues impacting the environment. Each Sunday evening, they'll be screening a film and then host an interfaith discussion about it. Uh, and uh, it's coming up this February 28th, Sunday at 6 p.m. It's the film Chasing Coral. The screening and discussion begins at 6 p.m. You can learn more and register for the free series at tinyurl.com slash K-I-P-L, Kipple, Kentucky Interfaith Power and Light, dash Facing Winter. Or you can find the link on Facebook at facebook.com slash K-Y Interfaith Power and Light. And that's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and being a part of this 200th Sustainability Now show. We're going to push on, maybe make it to 300 or more with your support. So go to FordRadio.org and chip in what you can today to help keep us on the air. Thank you all for all your support over these years. And I'll be back in your ears again with show number 201 in one week's time. My friends, be well. Oh, oh.